Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben, and welcome to episode 416 of the podcast for June 2nd, 2021. My guest today is Brad Jevons. He's joining us from Brisbane, Australia, and you'll hear more about him in just a minute. We're going to be talking today about lean and agile concepts outside of manufacturing, including sales and other environments. For show notes, links, and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 416. Please follow, rate, and review. And if you like the episode, please share it with a colleague. Send it to them by email or share it on LinkedIn. That would really help get the word out about the podcast and our great guests. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is Brad Jevons, as you will unmistakably tell uh, soon enough. He's joining us from Brisbane, Australia. So before I give more of an introduction, uh, Brad, thank you for being here. How's it going? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Really looking forward to the episode. Appreciate being able to come on. Yeah, sure thing. I, I could have left that as a, a big surprise for people who didn't know you. <laughs> to hear the accent is uh, it's nice. It's a it's nice to hear. So I'm glad you could join us. Uh, that the internet makes it possible uh, for us to connect across um, all all this distance, and we can have a great discussion because I know the work and the things that you're doing there are going to be really applicable. I mean, this really is a, a global lean movement and opportunities uh, to, to learn from each other about. So I'm glad we can do that today. Yeah, definitely. So let me tell you a little bit more about Brad. He And he's going to tell more about his story, but he is principal consultant with uh, the firm SA Partners. Among other things, he is the author of a book. I think he can hold it up here uh, for those who are watching on YouTube. Agile Sales, Delivering Customer Journeys of Value and Delight. So I think in our podcast today, we're aiming to deliver uh, value and delight. Um, Brad is the host of a podcast called the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, and he was kind enough to have me as a guest on uh, on his show. So, um, and Brad, if you can um, maybe just first off around the podcast, um, where people can find it, do you have a website for the podcast? What episode, I forget what episode number mine was. Yeah, so to get to the podcast, they can look on any of their podcast apps or go to the enterpriseexcellencepodcast.com. And uh, Mark, your episode was number 20. So it was very good, mate. Very good feedback and good rating. So I'd recommend anyone go listen to Mark's episode there. And um, there's also a YouTube channel for it too, which you can get to via the website, the same name, Enterprise Excellence Podcast. Okay. And I'll, I'll link to those in the show notes. So um, thank you for um, having me there. But here, so enough about um, uh, me being on your podcast. Let's learn more about you, Brad, and, and your background. Um, can you? I always like to ask guests just to help get the ball started. You know, how did you first get introduced to Lean? And then I guess the Related question, maybe you can weave it together, is how did you get introduced to Agile? Because I know for, for you know, personally, I know far less about the Agile methodology. Some of the audience here might be in the same boat. So we're going to talk about both of those today. How did you get introduced to these approaches? Yeah, Mark, I'll, I'll go back to a long way, which is I grew up on a farm in Australia. And a lot of you around the world will know the history of Australia with, you know, feast and famine of rain and drought. And so... And it was a small farm. So sometimes when you've got a larger farm, the impact's not as hard. But I grew up on a small to medium-sized farm. 
and you grew up in scarcity like it was it was tough and so it taught you from an early age to be efficient do more with less you've got a bond as a team because you're you're remote the people or your family around you is who you're around the whole time and so i think that taught me a lot of the behavioral traits and things that i needed to really go into this career the only negative of Australian farming is that there's this saying called bind it up with wire to get the show back on the road. So <laughs> there's a bit of a patch it up type of culture. <laughs> yeah. So the, the shift into more scientific thinking and root cause is is needed. So I'll just say it's not all glorious in that regard. <laughs> sure. But when I got to university, I focused in on uh, Japan, not because of process or anything like that, just because I love, love of the culture. And that took me down that rabbit warren of really learning about Toyota production systems and total quality management and uh, also studied McDonaldization back then. There is such a thing as McDonaldization and it was really good. And I think it just linked with that passion of growing up where it was all about having to really be efficient and effective at what you do and also focus on, you know, the family culture and the bond to really succeed and I, I heard this coming out of all this study on Japan you know this ultimate focus on teamwork this ultimate focus on people this ultimate focus on systems and I just yeah bound to it and then early on in my career I got involved in the software world and more for a manufacturing point of view so it was software for automation uh, but I discovered uh, agile and learn about the different scrum techniques coming through and agile and really even Jeff Sutherland and Ken Schwab are the founders of scrum which really is predominantly what agile is about they notify that it comes from lean you know they they openly say that agile is built off of lean philosophies and lean practices and you know they're passionate about Taichiono and they're passionate about Jeff the work of Jeff Liker and you know Mike Rother and so many others I think, um, again, it's got the same philosophy of how do we form high-performance, high-cultural focused teams to deliver great outcomes? And so it's very, very similar. So I want to um, go back and, and touch on or have you elaborate, Brad, on a couple of the things that you brought up. You, you mentioned growing up on a, a farm. I mean, there are many, I think, associations between Toyota and farming. You know, Toyota, you know, they, they say, you know, Honda is the big city company. And Toyota is uh, the farmers because um, you know in the, the outskirts of uh, Nagoya and, and you know Toyota City is surrounded by uh, farmland. And do do you think is there a certain like kind of longer term perspective when it comes to growing crops versus growing people, growing an organization, if you will? Yeah, I think there's high connections. You know, when I when I was growing up. You know, my father and also neighbours who I'd go over and do work for, they would just say to things, say things to me like, "Brad, don't pick something up twice." You know, so there was a saying like that. There was a saying on focus on the right pace. You want to be able to run the whole day and get through the day. You know, you don't want to overburden the machine. You don't want to overburden yourself. Uh, all these sayings that were just folklore, and it led into my behavior. The other thing that's interesting too, guys, and I found this out at the end of an episode I recorded with Jeff Sutherland, you know, the one of the founders of Scrum and, and Agile. Jeff grew up on a dairy farm. I think there's something innately when you're at the mercy of nature and 
you're at, you're in your family and you've got to survive and succeed and it's about a dynasty so there's a bigger purpose to it too you know in farming because it, it most farmers you talk to it's about what's your purpose it's never to make money it's to hand this down to the next generation and it, it drives them so emotionally like I, I could go down a rabbit warren on that one but it's um there's some really great elements to what we know is best practice, lean and agile nowadays. You can find on most, if not any farm. And I mean, when you talk about handing it down to other generations, I mean, the ability to do so requires making money. But you, I'm, I'm guessing there's a difference between short term and longer term that you wouldn't want to uh-huh. do something in the short term. I'm going to make up a scenario. You can correct me if any of it's a bad scenario, but let's say, you know, there would be things that you could do to boost the production of crops in the short term that might damage the land for the longer term. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You need to be thinking about every element of what you're doing because profit, of course, is a part of being able to hand it down. But that longer term perspective of what's going to be happening on this land in 50 years when my grandchild's got it plays a part. And it is longer term thinking, Mark, exactly what you said, because when you're talking that purpose of, I want to hand this on to the next generation, it's not about yourself. It's about doing what you can do for that generation. Unfortunately, many of the farmers have so many other forces coming at them, largely from Mother Nature, that can really make their life tough at times. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful life. And when things are high pressure and stressful, I still place myself back on the farm and imagine some of the things I used to do there. But yeah, mother nature and yeah, it's tough. So one other thing I wanted to ask you, Brad, that you mentioned earlier, um, the, the phrase, the I guess the word McDonald'sization. Certain things that come to mind to me, but also I'll just ask you, like what were you taught about that phrase? What what does that mean to you? Yeah. The, the thing that really, uh, when I first heard it, I was shocked and I was, I, I, I was like, oh my goodness, we're going to learn about McDonald's. And, but they phrased it with the caveat that, you know, that McDonald's have been highly successful at bringing together young teams of, I don't know, what, 15, 16 year olds to be able to perform and achieve high performance and customer experience in all over the world in a standardized way where you can walk into a a store in Bangkok and have a similar experience to if you go into New York in a store. It's quite amazing. So again, just like Lean and Agile, the whole foundation of it comes back to high performance teams and then using elements of Lean and Agile to actually achieve great results for customers. And you see the evolution of McDonald's where originally they had a Kanban. Like you would go into the store and there was a Kanban of burgers and then they've now got it to a place where it's more single piece flow. And you look at McDonald's and they've, you know, introduced self-service to get more flow in through the store and get rid of the queues. So they've, the whole thinking of just like lean, just like agile McDonaldization, it starts with the high performance teams and then it goes rapidly to how do we make value flow for customers, the right value that customers actually want. Yeah, and I think you know there are probably you know a lot of, there are elements of uh, system design and flow and standardization and you know the perception of McDonald's is that you know everything is in a procedure binders of procedures you know in a way it might be considered standard work 
But the, the one thing that might be a little different um, is the culture around Kaizen. And I'm just, I'm, I'm guessing based on perceptions, I've never worked at a McDonald's. Um, I worked at a, a, a fast food restaurant when I was in high school and I, I didn't, I didn't do that very long. That wasn't a good fit for me, but I don't remember being engaged in improvement and maybe that doesn't work because of the risk around, you know, I don't know, food safety or flavor. Maybe they have to be so um, concerned about standardization that, that maybe they're not engaging people the way, you know, I know for a while Starbucks was teaching, you know, kind of, you know, Kaizen lean inspired continuous improvement to the baristas and the store managers Instead of just dictating from yeah. Seattle headquarters, um, and you know Chick Fil A, which is a you know a famous. Have you heard of Chick Fil A, Brad? It's big here. In the no, States. not yet. No. So no. they do chicken sandwiches, and I interviewed um, uh, somebody from Chick Fil A where they very specifically teach lean methods to franchise owners who are interested in it. And um, so you know, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts or how do we build upon what might be some of the strengths of McDonaldization, but also like make sure we're not being too rigid, um, you know, in approaches to or possibilities for improvement. Yeah, I think um, for me, the key there is, is strategy and cultural deployment. I think that's the key. If you can do that very well, you can be having a culture of Kaizen that is moving forward, but still keeping some alignment to the, brand and the the direction of the company like that's that's the missing piece because you're right mark it typically seems to, seems to go two ways doesn't it? it the one way you see is a company where it's highly structured highly standardized and it's sort of it's one way it's a highway or you see and but they may have still big project-based improvement they do or kaikaku as you'd say in toyota production system to japanese but then you get the other way where you can get a company where it's maybe a franchise and there's a lot more freedom and, but that freedom too can go too far if it's not aligned, you know, and there's not that alignment. And I've seen that in some franchises as well. So it's finding that middle ground, isn't it? And I think, what's your thoughts on that, Marcus? I would go, to me, mastering strategy and cultural deployment is such a key aspect of success in, in my mind anyway. Yeah. I mean, like to me, I think whether I was, let's say, running um, a McDonald's location or, you know, thinking of the work that I'm around in healthcare, I think you, you draw certain boundaries. There, there are certain things that must be formulaic. Yeah. And for McDonald's, that might be the food recipe. For Starbucks, that would be the drink recipe. In a hospital, let's say within a pharmacy or like with vaccination, you can't be innovative about how much you're d diluting the vaccine. Like you have yeah. to follow really rigid science-based structure, but then there's room for a lot of continuous improvement and innovation around how does that syringe uh, full of diluted vaccine flow to yeah. the patient? Um, yeah. How does somebody arrange their workstation that they're using when they're giving the injection? So to me, I think you just sort of, you know, you, you talk about what is completely non-negotiable. There are certain things that cannot be changed or they have to be done through, you know, some strategic controlled initiative. But then there are a lot of things where you'd say, yeah, this is completely negotiable. Within these boundaries, you can figure out the best way to do the work. Yeah, it's a good point, Mark, because I think I'll give another example. Those sort of standards, it creates quality at the source in a way. Like I work a lot in marketing teams, like with my book, it, it's brought me into the sales and marketing world heavily. 
if you go into a marketing team and they don't have a brand guide, you have masses of waiting because invariably they're feeding up to the boss or the boss above to try to get approval for every campaign they do or anything that's happening. As soon as you put in place that that the field around the goalposts, you know, and those that framework, you've you've then got flow and you get this ultimate performance happening because they've got they know the boundaries to work within. I once had a HR leader say to me that, you know, excellence in business is a lot like a a football field. You've got the goalpost down the end of the field, the challenging goal, and then you've got this boundary line going around you. And there's like this, you've got this room you can move in, but there's some boundaries you've got to, we need to work within. And I thought that was a really good analogy. Links to what you're saying too. And I think what you said applies. You may have been thinking Australian rules football, where I was thinking American yeah. football. <laughs> That's why I left it out. Yeah. I was thinking to myself, okay, don't say Australian rules. Don't say. <laughs> I've seen um, a little bit of Australian rules football to at least appreciate. Yeah. They, there are goalposts. Yeah. yeah. That's are, one thing in common. There's a standard <laughs> yeah. there. Right. But Australian rules has four goalposts at every each end. So that's a little bit, a little bit of a variance. Yeah. Um, so Brad, um, like coming back to agile and I want to hear a little bit about the story behind your book. And again, Brad's book is titled agile sales. Um, how did you get started working, uh, with, with sales teams and in particular, and this is gonna be one of the themes to the episode here, um, you know, people perhaps who were working remotely. Yeah. So with, I ended up in a general management role for a long time in my career, and also I was involved in sales management. And if you talk lean and agile, and you talk lean traditionally applied in manufacturing, you talk agile typically applied in IT, it's both just about high-performance teams. You know, it's how do you get these high-performance teams that you build that culture of continuous improvement and you, you move towards that goal. And whether it's a sales team, a factory, a hospital, you're talking, it's about people. And so what I found early on, through some trial and error and challenges, I found that the same elements out of I learned out of Agile and IT and R&D and lean out of the manufacturing and studying Toyota production systems, I found that they just applied to sales in the same way. The other aspect that did for me is sales has always traditionally been fairly remote. Uh, you had you know, people all over the country, people all in different regions. And so applying it, you had to apply remotely. And so in the early days, we were using um, telephone and we we're using the old different um, screen share apps that you could get back in the day to be able to show, make a transparent board and, you know, make data transparent. Of course, nowadays in sales, you've just got the most amazing systems through like CRM softwares like Salesforce or Microsoft Dynamics or HubSpot. And so you're, the key aspects of Agile, there's three key pillars. One is transparency. The second is inspection, that you're inspecting that transparency, that transparent data regularly. And the third pillar is adaption, that based on that learning, frontline teams are adapting. Like you said, Mark, they're, they've got the boundary lines and they're they know where they've got a challenging goal and they're able to adapt and improve and continuously evolve themselves. And so that's what made me think, okay, well, sales has been this area where everyone's seen it as a art form and a lot of organizations just hire salespeople and say, rightio, here's your car, here's your keys, here's your phone, off you go, go sell us some stuff. Mm -hmm. 
And you only get a few high performers in that scenario where you take that approach. The same as if you did it in the factory, the same as if you did it in IT. And so that's why I wrote that book first because I was like, okay, this is an area that really needs help because it's an area that has not had any sort of systems and scientific thinking and even high performance cultural approaches applied to it because traditionally it's all been about books that have been written haven't been about systems and culture. They've been about how do you entice, manipulate, whatever you want to do, call it a customer. And so I felt it's the first book I should write. Uh, so when you say a first book, there, there, at least in, in your mind, there are other books that will probably follow. Yeah, definitely. I, I enjoyed it. It was a tough road, but it was, as you'd know too, Mark, writing books. Does it get easier, Mark? Like you're up to your third now. Does it get easier? Um, uh, in, in some ways, yeah. It may, you know, I mean, each book is its own unique uh, creation in a way. So, I mean, yeah, you learn things about writing and managing that and, and publishing, I guess. But, um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I've, I've met some authors who say, no, nope, one and done. I wanted to write a book and I'm glad that I did, but I'm never going to do it again. And then there are the authors uh, who say, yeah, okay, I've, now that I've done it, there'll be something else. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll, I'll yeah. be back in down the path. Well, good. Um, so I was w- wondering, you know, we, we've got a lot of things we want to touch on here today, but, you know, thinking back to, you know, at the time of this recording, 11 months of, um, at least in the United States, for me, it's been 11 months. Um, we'll call it roughly a year of life being upended, of course, with the pandemic and people adjusting to more remote work. What, what are some of the things that you've learned over this time about, um, you know, improvement work that's happening in more distributed workplaces. Yeah, I think uh, the same applies remote as it does in person. It's just applied differently and more important in a way. So the thing I find whenever I go into an organization or I work with a team, I always look for what's the motivator first? What's the purpose? What's, What's the reason why they want to change and do something better. And without that, I find not much happens. And you've got so many studies and books that have been written on it. You know, John Cotter talks a lot about the burning platform and, you know, he he talks about that negative emotion. Like, you know, a purpose for change can be a negative emotion. I think the critical thing you've got to be careful of is that it doesn't go too far because otherwise if you fire it up too far, people will just run away, you know, jump ship or put the head in the sand. And then you've got, like, recently Simon Sinek writing around about the just cause, you know, more that positive emotion. Of course, he's he's famous for the, the start with why also. So I think it can be a negative or positive, but you've got to find that purpose. And I think if it, if it can be aligned to the top level of the organisation, that's powerful, you know. But it doesn't have to be, as you and I know. It can be you're creating a beachhead, a pilot within your own department or your own division, and you're going to look to really start to integrate excellence into your team. I've got one company, Mark, where they've done it really well. Like their company's mission has always been helping uh, Australian organisations compete. Like these guys sell packaging, you know, uh, Signet is the company name and Insignia is their sister company. And through COVID, they went remote. So they've used Microsoft Teams largely. Like there's so many platforms you can use and they've shifted everything to that platform 
and we've actually found some benefits. Like we found that people aren't having to travel to huddles or scrums and people are able to rapidly jump on. But the other benefit is that from a purpose point of view, the CEO, he does a town hall for 15 minutes every Friday at lunchtime or just before lunch. And the whole organization, whoever wants to can join. It's not mandatory. But And of course, in that town hall, he's referring back to the purpose constantly. And he's talking about what's happening and impacting the company right now and what it means to the people. And, you know, that's powerful. You could not do that prior to the, the pandemic and a lot of the shift where people have really gone remote in a big way. So I think they've taken that element of transparency and also the element of purpose and really taken it to another level. So you can you can think quite smartly now about how do we run our rhythms from you know frontline teams to middle management to executive, but also to how do we maybe put in more of a town hall approach or more that open transparency where people can opt into hearing. And it's not always the CEO who talks. Sometimes it's different executives that will rotate and talk, but they're, they're just sharing things that are happening and linking it back to the purpose and also communicating what it means to the people as much as they can. That helps mm-hmm. helps everyone feel safer. You know, people love certainty and they love being in the loop. So I think that that plays a big part to start with is getting to that whole motivational piece and thinking about how do we communicate that and really make it part of our DNA. And then also to allowing people to put it into their own language. So, of course, the, the sales team in that organisation I'm talking about, well, their language of helping Australia compete is very easy because it's, okay, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to find out what my customers are focused on, what their challenges and goals are, and I'm going to see how I can help them. I'm going to see how I can run improvement with them. And they use a PDCA cycle. It's in different words, but it follows a PDCA cycle to help them. The warehouse team, their driver is... It's, different. They've got a person down on the floor. He looks after the forklifts. So his driver is to do TPM and keep forklifts running. And he helps keep the site running that allows them to dispatch so that they make sure that people have got their supplies they need. So their whole driver is, you know, we help we help Australian industry keep moving because we are slick at dispatch. And we really make sure we, we improve constantly to get better at how quickly can we get it out. And they're constantly pushing back how late they can dispatch, which means that more customers can order later in the day and get the get goods the next day. So there's that real, that's the example of that drive, you know, getting the purpose down to what it means to people too. Well, and so one thing I hear you saying, Brad, is that um, even though there, there may be some challenges and how do we connect with people and collaborate on improvement in a distributed workforce, that there are some technologies that maybe make it easier to... Yeah. Communicate, communicate, communicate when it comes yeah. to um, trying to create alignment in, yeah. uh, in an organization. And I, maybe one of the challenges is how to turn that from really effective one-way communication uh, to two-way communication. Like, you know, how would you, how would you incorporate cycles of uh, catch ball yeah. in an organization through technology? So have, have you seen people work on that piece of it? Yeah, definitely. So in in an in an agile approach, they do what's called big room planning. So in an agile approach, they actually get everyone in the one room. So with uh, programs like Zoom now and also Teams has got breakout rooms. So it's really cool that you can bring everyone into this big room to conduct um, catch ball, both for strategy but also culture. 
and and financials and you can bring everyone together and then you can break out then you can bring together break out bring together break out and there's that whole concept out of agile which is sort of focus on five person teams as much as possible because it's known that that's sort of the highest performance base but the technology of breakout rooms just makes it amazing so that's one example that i see they're doing that big room planning the other approach is just really that traditional hoshin kunri approach of form the top plan and then set up a series of you know teams or zoom meetings with the people below and then that cascades down to the people below and you get that feedback and then help the people below form but what i'm finding in this new remote world is you can do it so much more effectively and so much faster because it's easy for people to be able to join meetings and run rapid you know 15 30 minute uh, strategy and cultural deployment meetings. So either way works. Um, and depending on the company culture, I, I choose either approach and it, it seems to get the same, the same result. Of course, big room planning is a bit, can be a bit more, a bit faster, but you can lose a bit more of that independent, that intimacy between leader and team and then leader and team below. So you, you talk about uh, purpose and to give a little bit of a preview for some of the things that we're going to delve into, um, multiple P's, right? It's a good framework. And you talk about purpose and people and process and performance. What are some of your key lessons, Brad, related to uh, people? You've already touched a little bit on some of this, but I, I think there's a lot I'm sure you could say on, yeah. on, on people. And Mark, I think that's, that's one thing I really find uh, a difference between the typical agile deployment and the typical lean deployment. This is a variance and please feel free to chime in here with this Mark because you've got such a big background. With with people, agile looks at the putting the cross-functional team if it's needed at the front line. So one difference is you look at who's the customer. So let me apply it to a factory because this is a different one. But you, you go to a factory and you go who's the customer? The customer can be a machine. And so then you go, okay, so who's the team that we need working tightly together to keep that machine running? What capability do they need? And you choose your team based on that. The same in sales. In sales, you go, who's the customer? Okay, so the customer is a manufacturing customer and it's highly technical sale. Okay, well, who do we need working tightly together as a four or five person team to deliver great outcomes? Okay, well, it's not just a salesperson. We actually need the team to be a salesperson, a project or a technical person, a marketing person. And, you know, we need these capabilities in that team. And so you form the team there where a lot of the companies where I've myself anyway worked on a lean deployment, the, the cross-functional seems to happen at the level, at the divisional level, you know, is where that true cross-functional happens. And so that's the team part. I've been doing a lot of that now where in a company that really wants to amplify performance is just saying to them, okay, so who's the customer here? And who are the people that we need working together? Or what skills and capability do we need? One of the best examples in the world I see of this is special forces. You know, when you look at a special forces team, they, there's a medic in there, in that five-person team. There's a medic, there's a sniper, there's a demolitions expert. And then the role of those people is actually to cross-train the others. So that if, unfortunately, the medic gets injured or killed, they can still function. So it's really taking that philosophy and applying it to to teams. But the autonomy and the empowerment you get in that scenario too is so great. And we all know how powerful that can be. So I find that 
taking members and forming them based on who the customer is for that process or that function. The one thing with teamwork in the remote world we're in now is there's a concept in Agile called quantum entanglement. And Agile have a lot of these patterns. So in Lean, we talk about behaviors. In Agile, they talk about patterns. These are patterns of behavior that determine success or failure. Quantum entanglement basically says that you need to entangle people where you need them to be able to work together and form that bond if you can. Now, in this world right now, we can't put people together easily for a number of months so they can really bond. But in in traditional times, it was like, okay, let's put teams together for a while, let them really bond and form that connection, and then we can remotely move them apart and they can work remotely. And then quantum entanglement also says that you watch then key measures. So you watch cultural measures in your scrum or your huddle and you watch performance measures. And over time, you'll see that they will plateau because it's known that when people are remote, over time, they can drift. The team bond, the team culture can drift. And so the concept is once you see that happen, bring them back together and get them back together as a team for a period of time so that they can reform, reconnect, and then split again. I'm finding now in this world we're in right now, you can still achieve it, but you just need to be a bit more creative about it. Like Friday afternoon, Friday afternoon drinks and remote board games or whatever you can do to allow people to just connect as a team on a human side. Uh, of course, there's going to be stuff that draws them together with work and draws them apart, challenges that come up. Uh, but I think you can still create outcomes by being quite creative on what are some unique ways using virtual technology that we can bring people together to learn more about each other, live in each other's shoes more, you know, show empathy to each other, uh, you know, find areas of relatedness and commonality that is actually, you know, within a work content text, but also outside of a work context. So I think that's what we need to do at the moment. We, we need to get creative as teams and think, how can we do that? Um, I wanted to ask also, you know, kind of thinking back to your time as a general manager, um, you know, many listeners here may be internal process improvement specialists or outside consultants. You know, they, they don't have responsibility for the organization the way a general manager would. Were, were there lessons thinking back even, you know, uh, in traditional workplace environment of, um, lessons around engaging people, what, what does it really mean to create a learning organization? Yeah. As a general manager, Mark, back in the day, I was very fortunate because as a consultant or a business improvement lead in a business, you're cross-functional. Like you, your job is to be able to really understand and be able to help people and, you know, guide people and influence. And that can be challenging. Whereas as a general manager, you are part of that direct cultural chain and you can alter your behavior instantly to get better outcomes. Like it's, a, it's amazing because you, you basically, you alter yourself, you will get movement. And so I think the key for me in when you are in that general management position is to be constantly running PDCA each, each day, each week, reflecting and reflecting on what you're seeing, but then also adjusting yourself and then helping the team below you reflect and learn and adjust. And you can do this through um, one-on-ones. They're very important because that's where you can really focus in on the individual and help them. And also you can do it 
as part of teams, of course, as part of your scrum or your huddle or your toolbox or whatever you call it, your rapid performance meeting. And it's just, but again, as a GM, you're in the fortunate position that if you start demonstrating that behavior and then you start using language that demonstrates that behavior, you will instantly get movement. As long as, as long as, as long as people see there's a bigger purpose to you and they actually feel some sort of bond or connection to you, um, you've got a great chance because as soon as you shift to what you're talking about, Mark, where you go, okay, I want to create a learning organization. I'm going to demonstrate constant learning and improvement and reflection, you know, using PDCA well in the way that I conduct myself and improve myself. And then I'm going to help others. You're in a great spot. And I think having that past experience as a general manager probably helps you in working with organizations today. I mean, because yeah. I, I would say, frankly, I mean, that, that's a gap in my professional experience. It's, it's, it's good because I also reflect, Mark, on the bad things that I did and the things that the behaviors that negatively impacted the organization. And it gives me a level of humility in talking to others too, because even though I can I can be talking to a leader and or observing a leader, and I could be thinking, oh my goodness, look at what's happening, but I, I've been there, I've done that. I, I it's um, yeah, it's changing habit. Well, being aware and then changing habit is not easy. Sure, not easy. It, that's hard for individuals. That makes organizational behavior change and culture change even more challenging. Yeah. That much more complex. Yeah. Especially if you've got the pressures coming at you, because as we know, when you're under stress, your conscious mind stops working effectively. And so that's where it's so critical as a leader that you've, like you said, Mark, that you've got standard systems that help you break out of that. I can't think of any other way, especially if you are a leader and you have a lot of pressure coming at you, you actually need to block out the hour at the end of the week where you're going to reflect and you need to hold to that like crazy like to me, for a leader, I don't know if you, this might be hard for the for listeners, but Stephen Covey had that quadrant of um, important, important, not important, and then urgent, not urgent. And, you know, he, he spoke how the quadrant of to be highly effective is actually being in that not important, uh, you know, oh, sorry, important, not urgent. So being in important things that are not urgent, because these are the things you drop. But a lot of the things as a leader that you need to do to be able to really create that learning organization, to keep improving yourself, to improve others, to really be effective, they're not, they're not urgent in the world of noise and everything we've got coming at us. So without structuring something to keep those things sacred and make sure you prioritize them, they can get lost so easily. And I think we, we mainly call that leader standard work don't we like it's i think it applies to a ceo as much as it applies to a or a president sorry as much as it applies to middle management or frontline leadership leader standard work and and for the you know the use of the word reflection as as you did there brad and 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 people will um you know i i tend not to throw around the japanese word for this people say uh talking about hansei just say reflection um I think there's maybe a recognition that, sure, reflection is important. But now, given an hour, if you were to, to say to me, okay, reflect, I might wonder, well, do, do, I, sit back in my, do I sit back in my chair? Um, 
what's the structure or is, is there standard work for reflection as opposed to just saying, okay, create the space and now reflect and something magical will happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right, Mark. It's important that you've also got that time blocked out that you're going to important areas of your organization to see. Now today in the virtual world, that's a, a little bit more difficult, but in some regards it isn't also like if, if organizations are really living transparency, everyone's Zoom meetings and Teams meetings really need to be open. You know, they need to be public. And you've also got so much technology now with virtual, uh, Google virtual reality and all sorts of things that you can easily get your hands on. But I think one of the best starting points is to have that, build in that transparency where every meeting's open. And so, you know, a CEO can go to Gemba and go to a huddle that's happening in any team throughout the organization and just, you know, you need that culture that people know this is our culture and this is what we do and they're, they're aware of what's going to, anyone could turn up. And I think the senior leaders, as far up as you can go, need to demonstrate that too, where people can come into their meeting. And um, that that creates that real easy ability to go to Gemba, listen, learn, observe, at least in a meeting, and then come back and reflect. And also, of course, going to the front line, you can then set up scenarios where certain people are willing to be able to, you know, tour around with virtual virtual reality or with just a FaceTime meeting or whatever it might be. I've seen a lot of the quality and safety organisations now doing that well, you know, doing their audits and their their uh, walks using virtual now also. And it's it's a lot more efficient. Like when you think of a CEO who might be based in Seattle or might be based in Tokyo, it's a lot more efficient and easier. Now, it's not going to be as effective because you cannot beat being there on the floor, but the efficiency goes through the roof. They can do a lot more of them and cover a lot more turf more rapidly. Yeah, there's efficiency and then we can figure out how to also have effectiveness Yeah, related to all yeah. that. Yeah. And not be come across like you're spying also, like you could go <laughs> with, right. with cameras and things like that. It's just getting the cultural element right. And I guess what you do with the learning will demonstrate whether people see it as you're spying to beat people up or whether you're actually doing it to learn and adjust your own behavior and help people to grow and develop. So I guess I've sort of answered my own question there that, you know, maybe there is a space where there's cameras and you can go to Gemba and just stand and observe through the cameras. It's what you do, what your behavior is off the back of that that's going to determine positive or negative outcome. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's it's the behaviors because I, I can think of instances where, a leader went out into the shop floor, or we might use the jargon of uh, they went to the Gemba, hooray, then they mm. acted very badly. Yeah. Right. So not all uh, factory floor or workplace visits are, are created equally. I think the behaviors matter greatly. Are we, are we building trust? Are we being a helpful, supportive servant leader? Or am I being, um, you know, a kind of punitive focused cop if you will yeah 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 i've seen one organization mark where they've got they've got cameras in the organization but they also have a tv screen next to it so the video of like you see myself would show up on the tv screen while i'm there at gemba which is similar to being in the circle you know the old traditional put the circle on the floor stand in the circle um it's similar to that so the the team members on the floor or wherever they may be can see that the 
a particular leader or someone is there and um, that they're just doing their time at the front line. And so you can get you can get both outcomes through that. How low cost TV screens are nowadays too. It's not a big investment. But I think it's, there's an important point there about the respect that's shown by giving transparency in all directions. It's not just that as the leader, I have visibility into the work, but I think there's a challenging, provocative question around, well, how much transparency is there about the work of leaders? Yeah. To let people yeah. within the organization. I assume that's what you meant when you say public, you mean relatively yeah. public within the boundaries yeah. of the workforce. Yeah, I think that's what's important. And there's ways to be public and still, like, say you're on an acquisition and there's conversations about an acquisition happening. There's ways to give that acquisition a code name and, you know, because no one really should properly know who it is apart from certain people. But there's ways that you can still talk about some touchy topics that are, need to be kept confidential and still have it transparent. And that's been used so much throughout history. Because that's the often line I will get from a senior leadership team. Oh, there's stuff we talk about that can't be public. <laughs> it's like, well, there's ways that you can still do that and create transparency and, yeah. and keep that. Yeah. I mean, that was an argument against open bullpen layouts for offices or, you know, the, the idea that the CEO is also going to be in a cubicle. Well, yeah, they, if they really need to have a confidential conversation, there's a room they can go to. But that could be done by exception instead of letting yeah. it dictate. All Everything has to be locked down. Yeah. Yeah. There's ways around it. It's sort of always just going that next why. Well, why? It does mm -hmm. it. Is there other ways around this? Yep. Yeah. Why or why not? Why not have yeah. more transparency? Yeah. It certainly plays to that. Now, what I've heard different studies that 70% of organizational behavior comes from what people see leaders do. I think it was actually Australian lady that did that study, but I, I can't remember her name, sorry. But it's so true, you know, because especially if a leader says one thing and then people see them do something else, that'll destroy culture quicker than anything will. Um, because there becomes that whole, they're a hypocrite, this is just rubbish. But if people see a leader demonstrate the behaviors that they want, sort of that old lead from the front, you know, you'll, you'll more rapidly get that cultural change that you want. So we've talked about purpose and people. You've, you've touched on process a little bit. I was wondering if you could share some more thoughts, um, again, kind of in particular in a COVID remote workplace environment. How can we learn about our process? How can we improve that process? Like I think this is one of the best outcomes of being remote with process is the amount of platforms now like that allow us to map in different technologies like Miro, Lucidchart. Um, there's thousands of them. I couldn't name I couldn't name them all. But it's so easy for a team to come together and do whatever mapping technique is most pertinent to really try and understand that process. And also the way to visually represent process for employees who need to refresh themselves. Like everyone's got at their fingertips a computer now. So I've been doing so many events on customer journey mapping to help teams really create greater flow throughout the whole organization for their customers. And I've just been using templates out of Lucidchart. I've been doing value stream mapping for factories and just using big picture mapping. Um, even out of Visio, there's been that used 
um, just again on Teams or Zoom or whatever it might be. And then nowadays with uh, having technology at your fingertips, the benefit of being able to do video work instructions, rapid video work instructions, or make your work instructions more visual. To update your work instructions is so quick because everyone's got them right there with them. There's just so many benefits. Like the most important thing I'm finding about Mark is that when people define that new process and they define that future state and they achieve that future state, I see a lot of teams where they don't put the right measures in place throughout it to show is it actually sustaining is it getting better and that's a real gap like i think teams we need to be able to look at that the goal we're after what's our process what's the goal who's the process for okay what are the lead measures we need in this process or the quality the control points for the critical control points to be able to measure okay how do we make that transparent and of course that can then channel into transparent dashboards which again are so much easier in a virtual world so it's just it's just upside when it comes to process in the virtual world. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, there seems to be kind of a pattern through this. For every challenge is also some sort of opportunity where yeah. where yeah. we can't be in. Let's say you know I think you know healthcare process improvement people who are told to work from home for their own health and safety, trying to work with people who by the nature of their work in healthcare have to be physically there, right? There's a lot of telemedicine that's happening and that's been one of the opportunities, the acceleration of that that's happened because of the pandemic, but you can't give an injection through telemedicine. And yeah. there's some other, you can't, um, there are you know, different ways of um, helping people's breathing and, and obviously other treatment and testing that has to be done um, in person. So there, there are challenges for people trying to help support improvement work in those realms, but there, there's also been a lot of creativity and a lot of um, practice that I think will remain even when we get back to a semblance of normal or get back to the way it was. Yeah, yeah. Like, and Mike, I'm, I'm working with a, a, a large refinery in Australia, you know, big, heavy manufacturing and I'm even finding the remote world helping there because you've got this massive site where people are spread kilometers away. And in a way, bringing in this virtual processes and virtual approach enables people to not have to travel kilometers for meetings and the efficiency games and people may feel more connected. But the one thing I you need to do about is keep considering that human bond bit, that quantum entanglement pattern out of agile is how do we do things to create that bond that's deeper than just work and um that and the purpose element to that too so i think it's going to help industry right across the board if it's done the right way because it always comes back to that behavioral bit that you and i've spoken a bit about today is what what behaviors do you do based on the new systems yeah yeah and kind of the final p to talk about i think you know Purpose, people, process are leading to um, the ends or the performance. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of those um, connections and, and and why, as much as we talk about process, I mean, it's, it, we, we focus on purpose, people, process for a reason. How, yeah. how do you connect things to, to performance? But with um, performance for me, it, it comes back to the Mike Rother and Jeff Leica Toyota Carter model where 
does every team have their challenging goal? And then off of that, have they defined their lead measures of criticality to be able to improve to drive that challenging goal? But once they've got that, setting up the rhythm where they can collaborate and inspect, you know, that data becomes transparent. The, the challenging goal becomes transparent. The lead measures become transparent. And also the work they're doing to improve becomes transparent. And then from there, how do we set up a way that they can inspect it regularly? And that's, you know, the, the scrum, the one-on-one between a leader and the person. That's about the person and helping them. And then there's the scrum or the huddle or toolbox or whatever you call it, which is about the team. And then as you mentioned earlier, Mark, how do you then how do you then scale that through the company? So how do you get that so that from the front line, right, anything that needs to be escalated can because teams are going to come up with ideas to improve performance and we want them to be coming up with the ideas they can do and the small ones and just enacting them and making them happen. But then what happens if a barrier comes up or a challenge or an improvement idea that is outside their capability to just enact? Where does that go? And how can it go there rapidly and get acted on rapidly and then feedback come back to them rapidly? So in in um, in the agile world, you're getting these really flat organizations like, you know, companies like Amazon and Tesla and these sort of companies are so flat because you've got that cross-functional set up at the front line, these cross-functional high-performance teams. And then it goes to, you know, what's called a scrum of scrums or the scrum above those, and then it'll eventually get up to an executive scrum. And then, of course, in the lean world where it's a traditional waterfall structure or divisional structure, it's about those multi-tiered um, huddles and having those clear delineation of who can handle what at what level. Like if you're going to have that hierarchy and not give complete empowerment at the front line, the front line need to be clear on what they can enact and then what they need to escalate. And the middle management needs to be clear on what they can enact and what they need to escalate. I think a lot of this multi-tier approach breaks down where that clarity is not there. And what ends up happening, Mark, is everything ends up being pushed up because no one's willing to make a decision because maybe there's a bit of fear in the culture, but also there's no clarity, again, no standard that says, look, this is your this is your boundary line. You know, you've got that goal down the end of the field there. Here's your boundary line. Within these boundary lines here on the field, you can you can just do it and and go. And so I think that's the key to performance is having those key elements happen. And the final thing is I see is the ability for leaders to coach. You know, I really love the grow model, Mark. I don't know what model of coaching you like, but I I find the grow model really simple and I find if leaders can develop that capability to use that style of approach more and ask more open open probe questions with humility, not leading, man, it makes a difference because it instantly creates that empowered but also that high-performance focused culture where people are focused on the goal and why we're going for it. And um, yeah, I, I think that's important too is leaders' ability to coach and ask good questions. I think it's sort of an area of constant development. I know for me in my role as a consultant or even as a, a podcast host like you, Mark, I'm, one of my constant reflections is on my coaching capability, my questioning. How do I go? What could I do better next time? What do I need to learn more of? It's um, one of those critical aspects I think plays a big part in success or failure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are a lot of 
good coaching models out there. Um, I, you know, the, the work of Edgar Schein is meaningful to me. You know, the idea of, um, humble coaching, humble consulting, humble inquiry. Um, you know, I also think of, um, you know, earlier when we were talking about, um, reflections, you know, there's a firm I work with called value capture that teaches a reflection model. It's kind of, you know, a series of questions of like, basically, you know, we could reflect on the podcast, yeah. You know, this way, even like, you know, what did you expect to happen? What actually happened? What yeah. was the gap? What do we learn from that gap or from that difference? Uh, what do we do differently next time? And you yeah. know, how will, how will we know if that's led to something better? So I think, you know, that thought process incorporates, you could call it uh, PDCA or PDSA. There are elements to yeah. Um, you know, other, other frameworks that um, are, are similar or familiar mm. to that, I guess. Mark, I think one thing I'd like to add to that performance bit and what you mentioned about reflection, and this might be good for the listeners who haven't come across the Agile techniques before. Agile has this technique in it where you time block what, you got, what you're going to improve. So you time block within a month or a week or every day. This, we're going to execute this improvement effort in this time. And there's a whole heap of technique behind this, right? But it's time-blocked. At Amazon, they're doing two a day. So they're releasing an improvement, iteration of improvement to what their business twice a day. Like, it's extremely rapid. But at the what, what in Agile, there's a key technique in Scrum, I should say. At the end of every iteration of time-blocked, the team performs what's called a sprint review, which is where you're gaining feedback from stakeholders and customers and you're learning from that. So you're using that sprint review to learn from stakeholders, you know, customers and internal based on the work you've done and you're reflecting on that and using that for your next, you know, you're, you're putting more ideas and information into what's called your backlog of improvement on that. But there's also another rapid sort of conversation that happens, which is called a retrospective. So this retrospective is where you're looking back on the, the sprint and the scrum that you've run and the, the, even the team culture, and you're going, how do we improve how we're improving? So it's like this retrospective on the improvement system and the team culture, and you're then using that to feed more improvement in to get better and faster at how we improve. It's, uh, it's a really good technique. And that um, links directly to what you're saying about that, you know, reflection and review. So um, before we wrap up, um, again, our guest has been Brad Jevons. Um, the book is Agile Sales, Delivering Customer Journeys of Value and Delight. So you can find that uh, on Amazon for sure and other booksellers. Um, um, SA Partners, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the firm. I know um, uh, Peter Hines is one of the, yeah. the co-founders. I've had a chance to talk to uh, Peter before, and I've talked to some of your other colleagues from SA Partners, but if you can um, tell the audience a little bit about the firm and, and where they can learn more. Yeah, Mark, that's, Peter exuded this passion for sustaining improvement. How do we really help people and create cultures with sustaining improvement? And I think that's just disseminated into the company. You know, Peter Peter's now running the Enterprise Excellence Network and doing a lot of great work on training and other work that he does. And um, SA Partners still exudes that culture of how do we help organizations establish and sustain a culture of continuous improvement and excellence. Uh, they're linked to the Shingo Institute and they do a lot of the work with the Shingo Institute. And um, that's what drives me is that that purpose to the organization. 
you know, I really, really love working with them for that reason. You know, it's, it's, they're not just a training organization, you know, it's about how do we really help and tailor to that particular company. And um, they're all over the world. Like you, you can look them up at sapartners.com. Um, a lot of great content online. They just share free, freely. And there's just a, a really great purpose to the organization. Some great people. Um, Mark, have you had Kevin Zokai on the show before? Um, he has done, I was just looking up, he has done a guest post on the blog about lean and green. Um, yeah. He had me on to do, it was sort of a hybrid webinar podcast that he hosted. I, I should have Kevin um, on, on this podcast yeah. for sure. Uh, Peter, I, I went back and looked, um, I knew for sure I'd interviewed Peter. He was the guest in episode 373. People yeah. want to look for Peter Hines, um, just scroll down in the podcast uh, app or you can go to leanblog.org slash 373. Yeah, especially if you're, if you're struggling at all with how to really make it stick, um, the work of Peter Hines is, is amazing. Yeah, so we talked about uh, the concept of uh, staying lean. Yeah. Which if I remember is a, a title of um, – yeah. it's the title of a book he wrote. Yeah, he wrote that. And recently he and yeah. Chris Butterworth have written a book called The Essence of Excellence, which is really, you know, brings everything together. It's sort of my – it's my – um, main base for everything now. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So yeah, it, it does seem like a, a great group from uh, the, I think the rep, I think the sample of people that I've talked to must be representative of uh, the group as a whole. <laughs> yeah. I think it's too part of our community, isn't it, Mark? Like the work you do and the work so many people do in our, our space just comes from a real place of purpose and helping people. Like we are very lucky to work in the arena we work in, whether it's, Lean or agile, or it's it all exudes the same. It's just this we're we're in it for the bigger game of trying to help our future. <laughs> it's it's yeah. great. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's. Um, like I think of other uh, bloggers and and podcasters. There in in the lean space, there's the spirit of collaboration and support and abundance. Where you know, so yeah. I don't I don't look at you or, or you know, Paul Critchley or uh, Jamie Parker or others um, who have launched podcasts about lean. I don't think, oh, they're going to steal listeners from me. I think, yeah. oh, great. There's something else that I can listen to. And, yeah. you know, I think there's there's room for people to listen to all of these different podcasts and, and yours included. And, you know, we've had this, um, you know, networking group, you know, I've uh, mentioned a little bit at the uh, the front of some episodes, uh, Lean Communicators. And we have a website, leancommunicators.com. And Brad and I were, you know, were talking about getting him involved in that effort. So, yeah, I mean, it, stands, it sticks out like a sore thumb if somebody is being territorial when it, when yeah. it comes to Lean and, and not being supportive and collaborative with others. So, you know, thank you for, for sharing that spirit of collaboration with us, Brad. Yeah, it's kept me in the industry. I, I love it. If you can enjoy what you do for work, you're enjoying a lot of your life. So I, yeah. I've, I've been very blessed. Yeah. And and one other example, you know, going back recently to episode 400 with Jeff Liker, you mentioned earlier Toyota Kata. And, you know, I think the relationship and the collaboration between Jeff Liker and Mike Rother sets yeah. an example where, yeah. you know, Mike was literally Jeff's student. Yeah. And then, you know, Mike went um, and, you know, wrote the Toyota Kata framework. And then, you know, Jeff realized going from the first edition to the second edition of the Toyota Way, 
I think, you know, he got a lot right in that first book, of course, but he learned yeah. a lot in the process and he gives a lot of, he very graciously gives credit to what now he has learned from Mike Rother. So, the, you know, when the student can open the eyes a little bit more of the teacher, um, you know, because look, you know, that relationship, I don't know that relationship between them all that well, but clearly it hasn't splintered into like this sort of competitiveness of like, no, don't, don't, don't read his book. That's rubbish. My book is the only one that's good. Like there's, there's a great um, yeah. learning and collaboration demonstrated there. Yeah, Mark, that's a great example. That's a really good example. Yep. Well, Brad, thank you so much for, uh, you know, coming, being a guest on my podcast. I'm really glad that we could have a second conversation and, and build upon what we talked about uh, the time not too long ago you uh, you hosted me on yours. So, and again, for the listeners, that podcast is uh, the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. Thanks so much, Mark. I really enjoyed the conversations as I did when you were on, on my show and um, everyone, uh, Mark's is again, episode number 20, if you want to listen. Thanks so much, Mark. Well, again, I want to thank our guest, Brad Jevons, joining us from Brisbane, Australia, again, for show notes, links, and more to his book, his podcast, and everything else that he does. You can go to leanblog.org slash 416. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.